Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a White House press briefing today by Admiral Kirby about the Chinese spy balloon and the three subsequent objects shot down by the U.S. over Alaska, Canada and Lake Huron. Amid the hyperventilation from Republicans and the press, little more was learned about the unidentified flying objects from today's briefing and won't be until the debris is located and analysed. Joining us to discuss the reasons offered for shooting down the objects because they posed a threat to commercial aviation is R. John Hansman, the T. Wilson Professor of Aeronautics and Astronautics at MIT, where he's the director of the MIT International Center for Air Transportation. He conducts research in the application of information technology in operational aerospace systems, and Dr. Hansman holds six patents and has authored over 250 technical publications. He has over 5,800 hours of pilot in command time in airplanes, helicopters, and sailplanes, including meteorological production and engineering flight test experience. Professor Hansman chairs the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration's Research, Engineering, and Development Advisory Committee, as well as other national and international advisory committees. Then we'll examine the risks intelligence collection poses to diplomacy and reports that China's leader Xi Jinping may not have authorized the spy balloon and speak with Gregory Treverton, a senior advisor with the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a professor of the Practice of International Relations at the University of Southern California. He has served in government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, handling Europe and the National Security Council, and was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017. His books include Dividing Divided States, Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in National Intelligence, and Science for Policy. Then finally, we look into the Russian plan to topple the government in Moldova, outlined by Moldova's President Sandu, based on intelligence from Ukraine. Joining us is Rachel Smoltz, who was awarded the Fulbright Scholarship to Teach English in Moldova from 2021 to 2022. She's currently studying for her master's degree at the University of Alberta, Canada, specializing in 20th and 21st century Soviet American history, with a focus on the formation of national identities in the Crimean Peninsula, specifically looking at the period after Nikita Khrushchev transferred the Crimean Peninsula to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic in 1954. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for background briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now is R. John Hansman, who's the T. Wilson Professor of Aeronautics and Astronautics at MIT, where he's the director of the MIT International Center for Air Transportation. He conducts research in the application of information technology in operational aerospace systems. And Dr. Hansman holds six patents and has authored over 250 technical publications. He has over 5,800 hours of pilot in command time in airplanes, helicopters, and sailplanes, including meteorological, production, and engineering flight test experience, and Professor Hansman chairs the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration's Research Engineering and Development Advisory Committee, as well as other national and international advisory committees. Welcome to Background Briefing, R. John Hansman. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, we're hearing a lot from the administration, particularly today's uh, White House press conference where Admiral Kirby gave as much information as is available on these mysterious objects uh, that have been shot down over Alaska, Yukon, and now Lake Huron, as well as, of course, the earlier uh, incursion by the Chinese balloon. One of the things that keeps coming up is that they felt they had to shoot them down because they were at the same altitude where civil aviation flies. So that's obviously a legitimate concern, but since we're learning so much more about these objects, maybe there's been a lot more of these objects up there. What do you think? Well, uh, we don't know right now. We know that they um, they adjusted the radars that, uh, that they used to sort of monitor the high-altitude airspace to look for slow-moving objects after the Chinese balloon. Um, and so we don't know whether this increase in numbers is simply there, there's things that have been there for a while that um, uh, that we just haven't been observing, or whether there's more things sort of coming through. It's, it's we we do know that you know it's not unusual to have things like weather balloons. Most weather balloons are fairly small and light. Uh, they go up, um, they persist for a while, and then um, ultimately pop and, and come back down. Um, there are other uh, balloon systems that are intended to stay there for a longer period of time so that they're up there. So it's it's possible that they've been up there. It's, um, it is a concern if they're in the um, airspace that you could run into. Uh, but, the, you know, the skies are pretty big, so, you know, the probability of collision is low. But you know, by our normal standards, we would try and get rid of them. Well, the ones up in Yukon and in Alaska are at 40,000 feet. The one that was shot down yesterday over Lake Huron was at 20,000 feet. That is within the range of where commercial aircraft fly, right? Oh, yeah, and even 40,000 feet, you'll have some airplanes at 40,000 feet. 20,000 feet is actually sort of below where most, you know, most people cruise so that you might be in on an ascent or descent. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these are definitely in, in the airspace, in the civil airspace where we're operating. And, you know, um, it's the normal role of, uh, of air traffic control to keep, uh, you know, aircraft separated from any other aircraft or threat. So um, n- now that we're monitoring and know about them, at a minimum, we're going to be keeping airplanes away from any objects that are up there. But given that they've tweaked the radars at NORAD, which normally are looking for incoming missiles from China or Russia or or bombers, etc., now they've changed the gain so that they can monitor smaller objects with smaller signature. Does that mean, though, that we've been missing a lot of stuff over the, the months and years? Well, we don't know for sure, right? So let me back up and say the reason why the 
that you'd normally uh, suppress things that are flying slow is you don't want to be getting false alarms from things like birds flying by and things like that, um, or uh, or even weather balloons, right? So uh, weather balloons that you wouldn't consider to be a hazard or a child sort of mylar balloon, you, you don't necessarily want to be maneuvering airplanes around away from. Um, so we don't know for sure right now whether they've been there and we just didn't know it because we weren't looking, or um, is there a higher prevalence? It looks like based on the diversity of the types of objects we're seeing that there are probably things that were floating around up there. Um, I would note that in the latitudes you're, um, you're looking at, that's where generally the flow is fairly strong. That's where the jet stream is um, uh, moving across. So you would expect objects, which can be orbiting around the Earth, right, uh, for a while, to drift through the U.S. starting in the, you know, uh, the Alaska or um, northern parts of the U.S. and to drift across. So, um, again, it's consistent with what you'd expect from balloon drifting. But a kid's mylar balloon or one of those, you see those, see those balloons that some kids get it for their birthdays, mm -hmm. it's several clusters of balloons. Have any of mm -hmm. them ever been sucked into the engine of a commercial jet? Um, not that I know of specifically, but um, it could happen. The, 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 the jet engines are actually designed to take... Um, take objects in there so we we actually design jet engines to take a a bird strike so they as part of the testing they'll shoot a bird into the um into the engine and it, it should be able to continue operating so in all likelihood if that were to happen the, the airplane would continue along except the one that crash landed in the hudson in that well that was that was incident. that was a bad day that actually ran into a flock of geese so they took um took uh, geese that were actually oversized, um, bigger than the design bird, and uh, went into both engines. So that was a bad day. So of the 500 reports of unidentified objects in the sky over the past two decades, this is, comes from the Pentagon's All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, which is the office that's been set up to examine UFO sightings. Out of the 500, they've said 165 three were balloons or balloon-like entities, uh, mm -hmm. and then 171 remain unexplained. Do you think there's a link there in terms of what we think of as UFOs? Oh, I don't know, you know, on the UFO side. I mean, I, the, balloons are understandable. There are balloons that are uh, launched for a variety of reasons, you know, research basis, um, uh, Google for a while was running a program where they were trying to that had a fleet of balloons that were flying around the world that were used for um, basically internet relay. Um, there are we know now you know surveillance balloons. So uh, um, and even you know uh, for example at MIT students did an experiment where they designed and built a balloon and put it up with a camera and launched it and flew it. You know. Um, uh, it was a it was a small balloon uh, out over the North Atlantic and in sort of beam back uh, pictures. So, you know, there are there are balloons out there flying, um, and if you don't know about them and you see them, then they're unidentified flying objects. So, well, obviously there are rules over U.S. airspace about what you can put up there, mm -hmm. but 
the Chinese or the Russians that don't have to adhere to those rules, right? There, is there any international regulation of, about what you can put up in the air that might be a danger to commercial air traffic? So there are international agreements through the International Civil Aviation Authority, but each each country controls their airspace. And um, in order to legitimately fly into another country's airspace, you actually need permission. So, um, uh, so there is a kind of gray area where you launch something out of your airspace um, and you're legit in your airspace. But then once it goes into the next airspace, it becomes um, it could become illegal if you don't have approval to operate in there. Um, the uh, once you get above the controlled airspace, you know, when you're in space, there's an agreement that people are free to operate in space. So there's sort of a gray area at the top of the uh, the stratosphere where you're not in, in the airspace. Now, typically that's done because we don't have any airplanes operating up there. Um, once you get into where civil aviation is operating, then you're in the airspace, which is the domain of the of the state authority, whoever's whatever country controls that airspace. And then in the oceans, there are international agreements about who controls different parts of the oceans. And in terms of the first balloon that got a lot of attention, it wasn't necessarily the first because there have been a whole bunch of them, apparently three at least during the uh, Trump administration. Mm -hmm. It was at, what, about 60,000 feet? That's above where you, commercial aircraft would be flying, right? Yeah, so that's above um, sixty thousand feet is sort of the limit of where uh, where, where we control airspace. Um, so uh, that was at altitudes where it wouldn't have posed a threat to um, uh, to at least commercial aviation. There, there are some military airplanes that operate up there. But how would the Chinese have been able to put it up at that altitude to make sure that it? That wouldn't collide with aircraft, assuming that that was why it was at 60,000 feet as opposed mm-hmm. to, say, 30,000 feet. Yeah, I mean, you can, the way you control, I don't know, I don't know about this balloon because I don't, nobody knows too much about the details of it, but you can control the altitude a balloon is at by um, a number of techniques of how much helium or, or hydrogen you have as lifting gas and then how heavy the balloon is and what altitude it will stabilize at. Um, and there are things you can do to make it, you know, go up and down. So th- that's one way to control balloons is you move them up and down to get into winds that are moving in the direction you want to go. Um, so I don't know whether this balloon was actively controlled or not, whether it was just set up there, you know, like say on a, on a weather balloon or child's balloon, it will simply go up to the altitude where it's, it stabilizes, right? So if you know the amount of gas you have and the weight of the balloon, you can figure out what altitude it'll stabilize at. Well, apparently the Chinese so-called spy balloon, the array of solar panels that were dangling beneath it were used to steer it like sails. Yeah, so you can, uh, that's what we actually call an aerostat, not a balloon, a true balloon. So in an aerostat, you can, um, if you have some propulsion, you can move it. It, it turns out that uh, spheres are not very low-drag objects, so it doesn't move very well, but you can do a, a limited amount of either steering or station keeping with the 
with the balloon. Uh, typically, again, most balloons are controlled more by their altitude, so you move into and out of favorable winds, which is why they tend to drift in the northern hemisphere with the jet stream. So um, it, it's very hard. Uh, if you're sitting in the middle of the jet stream, it's going 100 miles an hour to hold, a, hold position with a balloon. So you would try to get above it or below it. Well, in terms of what we've been told about the objects over Alaska and Yukon and Lake Huron, over Alaska, it was supposedly a cylindrical, silver grayish, and about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. Mm -hmm. And then the one that uh, was shot down over Lake Huron was supposed to be octagonal. So is one of the reasons we have incomplete information that the Air Force pilots that intercepted these objects are flying at 700 miles an hour and that the object is almost stationary. So they kind of get a, a glimpse of it, don't they? I mean, we can't really rely on these descriptions, can we? Well, um, I, th I think you can to a certain extent. Um, they're flying, the slowest they can fly is probably 150 miles an hour. And you can get a good look at something as you turn, as you go by. Uh, it's important, and, and frankly, I don't know with the, the, all these vague descriptions of the geometry. Um, typically, in a balloon system, you will have the the gas bag, okay? And, and if you think about the, the images of the Chinese balloon, there's a big white uh, um, spherical shape. That was the lifting gas. And then hanging below it is the is the payload and mass in the solar cells, et cetera. I don't know in these descriptions that we hear about, you know, are, are, is this a description, is it a Volkswagen size gas bag or is the payload a Volkswagen size? So the thing that you worry about in a collision in the object is the heavy mass elements. So the payload, the batteries, et cetera. The bag would be, ba you know, it is not good, but it's it doesn't have a lot of mass, so it's not going to basically damage the airplane as much as hitting the, the hard metal. So I guess we won't really know anything until they examine the wreckage of the... Of the uh, I don't know that they found the wreckage of the one in Yukon. It's over a wide area. It's yeah, I mean, remote. Uh, that, that's the challenge. You're in these northern latitudes, and if you shoot something down, um, it's not necessarily going to be easy to retrieve. Um, uh, but I think, obviously, because of the concern about this, there's a lot of effort going into trying to retrieving uh, those. We'll, if we get the pieces, we'll know better. Um, and I'm sure they had cameras on board and whatever and are evaluating the information, all the information they have, right? Um, uh, and clearly, the radars are tuned in looking for anything like this. So, you know, if more objects like this show up, we'll be getting more information. Right. I think that they're probably likely to retrieve the object, the first one that near Prudhoe Bay in the north of Alaska, although it's supposed to be broke up when it hit the ice. I don't know that they found the one in Yukon, but the one that uh, was shot down over Lake Huron is apparently near the Canadian side of the lake, but in very deep water. And I'm not mm -hmm. sure that they found that. So... There'll be lots and lots of speculation until something is evaluated, right? And I guess the same is true for the uh, Chinese balloon off, off the Carolinas, right? They still haven't found, as far as I know, they haven't found whatever it is they're looking for. Yeah, the, I think the main payload I think they're still looking for. But 
I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, um, from a civil aviation risk standpoint, I, I think, it, it, you know, at the end of the day, from a civil aviation risk standpoint, um, I, I don't think there's that much to be worried about. Um, this is something that may or may not have been there for a while, um, had not caused a problem. It's something that uh, we're looking for right now to the extent that any object does get identified. Um, civil aircraft, of which there's not a lot of them up there, uh, will be maneuvered away from it. So I don't think there's an imminent risk to the public at the, you know, from this. Um, it's something clearly everybody's curious about, and we're going to figure out what it is and what's going on. Well, uh, John Hansman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Happy to be here. And again, I've been speaking with Arjun Hansman, who's the T. Wilson Professor of Aeronautics and Astronautics at MIT, where he's the director of the MIT International Center for Air Transportation. He conducts research in the application of information technology in operational aerospace systems. And Dr. Hansman holds six patents and has authored over 250 technical publications. He has over 5,800 hours of pilot-in-command time in airplanes, helicopters, and sailplanes, including meteorological production and engineering flight test experience. And Professor Hansman chairs the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration's Research, Engineering, and Development Advisory Committee, as well as other national and international advisory committees. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the risks intelligence collection poses to diplomacy and reports that China's leader Xi Jinping may not have authorized the spy balloon. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Gregory Treverton, a senior advisor with the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic International Studies and a professor of the practice of international relations at the University of Southern California. He has served in government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, handling Europe and the National Security Council, and was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017. And his books include Dividing Divided States, Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in National Intelligence, and Science for Policy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gregory Treverton. It's my pleasure. It's always great to be with you. Well, thanks, Greg. And what do you make of the sort of hyperventilation going on in the press and in the Congress, particularly on the Republican side, about the starting with the Chinese spy balloon and then the subsequent three unidentified objects that were shot down? I mean, there's a history, clearly, of intelligence collection posing threats to diplomacy. The most egregious example, I guess, was the U-2 incidents, which scuttled uh, the possibility of an early detente between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, between Eisenhower and Khrushchev. So how would you rate what's happening now in the context of that historical perspective? Well, I hope it doesn't get to that. And so, so far, it seems to me pretty much a tempest in a teapot, though it's easy these days to get almost anybody in Washington worked up about China. 
back with China and the, and the back of the Chinese haven't been great about it. They apologize, but they hadn't said what it was. So in that sense, the typical Chinese instinct to cover up and avoid unpleasant facts um, has hurt them. But still, this you know, it is, from my perspective, still a relatively small matter. As you say, the Republicans are using it just to beat up the Biden administration. But in substance, it's, you know, it's something to take care of because these are intelligence collectors and they have been collecting intelligence for a very long time. When I first heard about the balloon, I thought, gosh, how old fashioned is that? But when you think about it, balloons do have some advantages over spy satellites. They can loiter. They're eight or 10 times closer to the earth than even the lowest orbits of spy satellites. So they can maybe pick up signals or or see images that other uh, other forms of collection couldn't. But still, the fact that this has been going on for a long time, it, Washington sort of behaved as though that they, this had just discovered this. My goodness, they're spying on us, including with balloons. Um, so I hope we can get off that hysteria fairly quickly. But what do we know about reports that come from the White House suggesting that their National Security Council at least members of it, don't think that Xi Jinping necessarily authorized that overflight? Well, that's conceivable. Yeah, I, I thought if, if he did authorize it, it seems, uh, it seems almost impossible to imagine why. You, you can't imagine, it seems to me, the intelligence, the urgent intelligence value of doing it then before we'd scheduled the beginning of a, a better period in, in Sino-American relations with Lincoln's trip. Um, it's really hard to imagine uh, what would have happened. I think we've seen other cases, though, that even in that autocratic system, there are some disconnects between different levels. Uh, people resent being told what to do from the top, and sometimes they want to hide unpleasant things from their superiors. We saw that during COVID. So is there, the possibility of a disconnect seems to me to be a, a real one. Um, but it's a, it would be an odd one at this point in time. Well, the oddest thing of all to me, though, is that we have this diplomatic crisis and these heightened military tensions, but at the same time, the economic inter- interdependence between the U.S. and China continues to grow. The Commerce Department reported that bilateral trade last year between the U.S. and China reached a record-breaking $690 billion dollars with the American uh, trade deficit with China growing by nearly $30 billion. So is that reality? Is that sort of an anchor that tethers us to reality? Or could this hysteria that's happening now sort of take us into another another kind of era? I I hope so. I think so. I mean... From you know, from the beginning, really, this has been all these all this talk of a new Cold War with China has been, I think, very unhelpful because there's so many differences. And you just mentioned one of the biggest differences, that is, we're interconnected with China in a way we never were with the Soviet Union. Trade with the Soviet Union was a percent of U.S. trade, a teeny amount. Uh, this is really important, and as, as we've seen, for all the talk of reshoring or friendshoring, nearshoring. Um, Supply chains through China are just too important to do away with. So they're going to continue, and that economic interdependence, I think, is just going to be a continuing, in many ways, a happy fact of life. Benefit from it, and so do they. Um, the other big difference is you know, maybe 
has an analogy in the Cold War, and that is whatever else we do, we have to cooperate with China on the climate crisis or humanity's chances of surviving are not very great. Well, that's about as important as it gets, right? The survival of the planet. I think that is important. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it, it's, it's the, in diplomatic terms, the difficulty is you usually think that you work on diplomacy on less important issues and then work your way up to the big important issues. What we're trying to do with China is usually work, work with them on the most important issues while sometimes competing, often disagreeing with them, sometimes even countering them on what are much less important, like economics, than the survival of the human race. But now, the least important of all, the sort of political circus around this surveillance balloon is dominating, and apparently uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has tried to reach his Chinese counterparts on the so-called hotline, and they're not picking up the phone. So, should we be worried? Well, uh, we should be worried in the sense that, that they're still not prepared, even on something that presumably doesn't have that bad an explanation. It's, yes, it probably is a spy balloon, uh, but we've known those, we've known they did them, we've presumably done them ourselves. Um, so it's, it's what's worrisome, I think, is the um, unwillingness of the Chinese to tell the truth, even when it's in their interest. You think how much better off they would have been if they cooperated about Wuhan from the very beginning of COVID-19. Um, been so much better for them. But their instinct seems to be, and I suppose that's the instinct of many governments, including our own sometimes, is to hide the bad things, hope they'll go away. But they typically don't. Well, you could argue they sort of dodged that bullet in, in the sense that there was an attempt to do an international uh, investigation into the origins of COVID and the Chinese got quite hysterical. They went after the Australians who first suggested doing so and then they slapped sanctions on them and gave a lot of money to the World Health Organization and uh, managed to sort of bluster their way out of that and they've been conducting what they call wolf warrior diplomacy and that's sort of backfiring, isn't it, uh, in terms of the neighborhood? It's not working out for them. So they do seem to have some sort of self-defeating tendencies. Yeah, no, they came through COVID at least the early rounds pretty well, but it could have been so much better if they used this as an opportunity to say, yes, we want to cooperate on these issues. We're always cooperative. Here's what happened, to the best of our knowledge, um, and not taken after the Australians and not tried to persuade the world that this was a U.S. military mission that had left COVID behind. Um, it just does seem like there's increasing disconnect, and I have the sense that uh, uh, she has, has committed a series of pretty unforced errors. Uh, zero COVID was obviously the most dramatic, but articulating growth targets that couldn't possibly be met, uh, now these balloons, the, the, the balloon and whatever the other things would end up being. Uh, it, it does seem to me that he's made a series of blunders that uh, are keeping worrisome for him and do make it harder, I think, to have the kind of relationship with China we'd like to. Unfortunately, lots of people in Washington don't want to have the kind of relationship with China that I'd like us to have, but 
for me, it's just imperative for all the reasons we talked about. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? It's as bad as things are now. And then I imagine had Blinken not canceled his trip, the Republicans would have really hammered him. I don't know even whether that's a good enough reason to do it. It would seem to me that diplomacy is always better no matter what the external conditions are. But things could get worse. There's a, a possible trip to Taiwan by the new House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, coming up, is there not? Yes, yes. So, and we, when Nancy Pelosi's trip was, uh, for me, a kind of understood, reflected her position for a very long time. It also reflected the fact that since once China, uh, Taiwan became tolerably democratic, it was supported across the U.S. political spectrum, not just by crusty right-wingers who were its supporters initially. Uh, but still, it was a needless for me kind of slap in the face to the Chinese. A McCarthy trip would be the same. Um, in the short run, the Chinese are just going to have to understand this is the way our political system works. Their political system produces some pretty quirky outcomes, and so does ours. Um, I think I think I've come to believe that they're sufficiently sufficiently understand the uh, dangers of any direct move on Taiwan. So that's receded for me some as a threat. So I don't know whether you saw the uh, White House press conference today, but there's obviously a lot of anticipation for, for now in the public about what these mystery objects are, that the three that have been shot down subsequent to the Chinese balloon. And uh, we didn't really learn much. So I guess we're not going to really learn much until they've inspected the debris. And even from the from the uh, Chinese spy balloon, they still haven't found what is more likely to be what they're looking for. Is that what's happening here? I think, as, at least as far as we know, that's that's what's happened. I mean, we don't we really know what those other three really were. You know, if one of them was at 20,000 feet, that's right in the middle of the flight line, so that's a dangerous place to be. Um, but we don't know what they were, and uh, we presume that the balloon was a spy balloon. Uh, that's like a pretty safe presumption. But uh, it will be to see how much gets revealed once they begin to put the debris together. It's too bad those things were big. And in the old, in the first days of reconnaissance satellites, basically the satellites would eject film capsules and they'd get picked up in, in nets over the oceans uh, by by planes. Uh, unfortunately, this balloon, its payload was uh, way too heavy to have that sort of treatment. Uh, three buses is a lot to collect in a net. So uh, I guess they had to let it go into the water and then it becomes a salvage operation. But it would have, certainly would have been nice to have it all intact. And the one that crashed off uh, the north coast of Alaska apparently hit the ice and broke up. So, and I don't think they've found the one in uh, Yukon. Uh, and the one that landed in Lake Huron apparently landed in deep water near the Canadian side. So it may take a while before we get any clarity on what those objects are. Yeah, no, I think it will, will take some time. So what's the possibility of... Of so many of these 500 reports of unidentified objects in the sky over the last two decades, these assessments come from the Pentagon's, they have their sort of own UFO office called the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. And apparently, at this point, they figured out that about 163 of these sightings were balloon-like entities, 
but that still remains 171 as being unexplained sightings. And the fact that NORAD changed its radar, they tweaked the gain on the radar so that they could find much narrower, smaller objects as opposed to looking for incoming missiles and bombers. That's how they picked up these more recent ones. Is it possible that there have been all kinds of stuff floating around there for the longest time that has been misidentified as UFOs? I think it's probably likely, at least for some of those that get identified as UFOs. You know, some of the, the Navy pilot sightings are pretty hard to explain. Um, they don't seem like these kind of objects floating around. But certainly a, a, a significant number, I think, could be things like the ones we've just shot down that uh, get misidentified or identified as UFOs. Uh, well, I guess, in fact, they are UFOs because <laughs> they don't know what they are, but uh, presumably they're not extraterrestrial. Um, yeah, I think it'll, it'll be interesting to see as we make a bigger push. You know, the, the services have been under pressure to take these strange anomalous sightings more seriously mostly for the extraterrestrial piece of it, but uh, now this will reinforce that need to, to do better at looking for some smaller things rather than bigger things and looking for, some, uh, looking for things that we don't know as immediate weapons rather than things we do. So just in closing then, is it your sense that the relationship is sort of derailed or off the rails or could it get back on the rails. I guess those are the three choices. We're not going to get back on the rails exactly, but, you know, to try and put some floor under it, to try and make sure we're cooperating on the things that are most important and the Chinese and China willingness to pick up conversations on climate with John Kerry. And one would hope that uh, maybe even the subjects of these current objects could be something that the United States could raise and discuss with China. That would seem a kind of a natural way in the Cold War tradition of confidence-building measures to begin to build some confidence between the two. We're probably not there yet, but at least starting with the climate discussions is a, is a good place to start. Well, Gregory Trevenant, I thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thank you. And again, I'll be speaking with Gregory Treverton, who's a senior advisor with the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a professor of the practice of international relations at the University of Southern California. He has served in government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, handling Europe and the National Security Council, and was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017. And his books include Dividing Divided States, Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in National Intelligence, and Science for Policy. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into Russian plans to topple the government in Moldova, outlined by Moldova's President Sandu, based on intelligence from Ukraine.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Rachel Smoltz, who was awarded a Fulbright Scholarship to teach English in Moldova in 2021 to 2022. She taught in Moldova until February of 2022, when Russia escalated a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Currently, she's studying for her master's degree at the University of Alberta in Canada, specializing in 20th and 21st century Soviet and Russian history. And her master's thesis focuses on the formation of national identity in the Crimean Peninsula, specifically looking at the period after Nikita Khrushchev transferred the Crimean Peninsula to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic in 1954. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rachel Smoltz. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And it looks like a fairly serious situation exists in Moldova because the prime minister, she stepped down, uh, but she's accused Russia of plotting to overthrow the country's pro-European Union government by using essentially opposition protests as a cover for a violent coup. And the intelligence apparently was delivered by Zelensky in Ukraine, whose intelligence services seem to be pretty effective. They apparently got the entire, got a blueprint of the Russian operation, and now they're alerting the Moldovan people to what was about to happen. And the plan involved bringing people in from Russia, Montenegro, Belarus, and Serbia into Moldova to spark these protests. So what do we know about the current situation? Have they headed off this coup attempt? I think that is a very difficult question to answer. And one of the things I'd like to point out, and that doesn't really get talked a lot about in Western news, is we hear a lot about Transnistria, which is the breakaway region in Moldova. But where I lived in Moldova for six months was in Comrat Gaguzia, Moldova. And Gaguzia is an autonomous region in Moldova. Um, right after the breakup of the Soviet Union in 91, Gaguzia declared itself independent. And then after some rounds of compromising with the Moldovan government in 94, it was granted autonomy status. But what's different about where I lived in Comrat is it was very, it was completely Russian speaking. Um, if you go to the capital of Moldova, they speak mostly Romanian. Um, but where I lived was Russian speaking and there was more pro-Russian sentiment there. And it's in the southern part of Moldova, um, south of the capital, and it creates a new dimension to what we're talking about because the identity of Moldovans is very broken. Um, you have people who are pro-West and pro-joining the EU and pro-Romanian, but you also still have people in Moldova who are pro-Russian and want Russian support. Um, so I. If they're on the south, does that mean they're on the coast? Because there's always been a concern that Russian marines could land on the Ukrainian coast in the south and link up in Transnistria. Yes. Um, so Transnistria is on the very east, and it borders Ukraine. Um, Gagauzia is kind of in the middle of the south and has and kind of connects to Ukraine as well. Uh, Moldova is completely landlocked itself. There are a there's a river that goes to the Black Sea, but it doesn't actually touch the Black Sea. So what's going on then in terms of the prime minister stepping down 
and alerting the country to these Russian coup plots? I specifically follow a lot of uh, news stories from Gagauzia, um, specifically Gagauzian newspapers. And when I was first reading about the story, there was a lot of people who were happy with the step down. Um, there's, along with being pro-Russian, there's a lot of anti-West sentiments in um, where I live specifically, and specifically anti-American. Um, I was looking at the election results when President Sandu got elected in 2020, 2019-2020, and where I lived, she did not receive much support. And that is a lot due to her pro-Western and her American education. People, a lot of people in Moldova don't want to be involved in this bigger operation. They would rather go every day, stick to their everyday lives. And um, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is significantly impacting them. Um, all the way back into November of 2021, Russia has threatened to shut off gas supplies. And there has been a rapid increase in just being able to pay for gas to heat your home. And the thought is if we make friends or join back with Russia, we can have lower gas prices and everyday life will be easier. Um, there's not a lot of look to the long term. Um, I've lived abroad on and off for the past three years. And that is the one thing that has really stuck out to me. In the United States, we really do view ourselves as an international world power. And we see the world in such a big way and we see every aspect of the world. Um, in other countries, they're more worried about themselves and not the long-term consequences of actions. Well, we know that the global south, and even right next door on our southern border, Mexico, does not support the Ukrainians in this war as a result of the Russian invasion. And President Biden just met a few days ago with the new leader of Brazil, Lula, and he also does not support the Ukrainian situation. I don't know that either him or Lopez Obrador in Mexico are necessarily pro-Russian, but they are certainly sitting on the fence. So what's your sense of what percentage of the population in Moldova, which ha only has a population of 2.6 million people, what percentage of you think, think are pro-Russian? And presumably, if you're pro-Russian in Moldova, does that mean you approve of the war going on next door? in Ukraine? I couldn't give you an exact um, specific number of who are pro-Russian, um, but I do not think it aligns with that if you're pro-Russian, you support the um, invasion. I think that you're pro-Russian and you don't, you want the conflict to end. Um, now that situation is different in Transnistria. Um, I spoke with several colleagues in Transnistria who lived there and the sentiment there is that completely believing in Russia and believing that Russia is doing the right thing by invading Ukraine. I don't think that's the overall assessment of many people, but it's the fact that Russia has helped supply Moldova with gas and money and resources for so long that if you cut ties with them, Moldova won't be able to survive and it'd make everyday life so much harder that sticking with Russia, who has always supported them, is the right way to go. Um, Russia or Moldova is not an EU member or a NATO member. And until quite recently, uh, many people probably couldn't even name Moldova on a map 
or even know it's a European country. Well, Transnistria, though, isn't is if it's not controlled by criminals, there's a lot of criminal elements in there, aren't there? Yes, there are. Um, it's an interesting region. Um, when I was there in 2021, 2022, before the war, uh, the invasion escalated, that to enter Transnistria, you actually have to show your passport and they put a piece of paper on it and stamp it because Transnistria is not its own country and legally cannot stamp passports. But they do treat themselves as very separate from Moldova. When you hear news in Transnistria, it's just about Transnistria versus Moldova still does treat Transnistria as part of the region. Um, for example, when we are hearing reports about COVID numbers, they still did report numbers about Transnistria as well. So what kind of a government is being formed now that Prime Minister Sandu has stepped down? Well, let me back up a little bit. Why did she step down? From the reports I have read, I have not given, I've not seen a clear reason. Um, I do think there is something happening behind the scenes that we aren't able to see. Um, because for her to step down so recently, I, I do believe there's a reason, um, whether it was an internal reason or perhaps there was an external reason why she stepped down. I think it relates to the news about Russia's coup plan. Um, but since then, President Sandu has reported a new prime minister to step up and also a very pro-Western candidate. Um, so it's not like just the stepping down is leading to a more pro-Russian Moldova. Well, she's chosen her defense advisor, right? Doran Rissian. Yes. I believe he's also um, worked in interior, in the interior sector as well. Right. So, but it's not necessarily politically stable. I mean, the opposition and, and the government, the numbers are pretty even, aren't they? Close. I mean, it's not, in other words, she... Sandu didn't have a huge majority to work with, and and her successor is not going to have a huge majority, right? No, absolutely not. And I think that's also looking at it from a Western perspective. Um, what is stable? Um, I think a lot of countries in Eastern Europe are battling this line um, between leaning to more authoritarian and leaning to more democracy. Um, the democratic transition is still so recent that you know, not many countries are fully stable over there. We've seen cases in Hungary and in Poland leaning more towards the right, and that is also what's happening with Moldova. Well, also the Russians fired a bunch of missiles from the Black Sea across Moldova, I think just a few days ago, yeah, and uh, the government protested. But obviously Russia doesn't care, right? I mean, they're at war. So... What are the chances then of uh, anything happening in terms of if this coup was held off or somehow thwarted, will there be demonstrations? Could uh, the plot be revived if indeed it has been in any way postponed? I think so. Um, the incident on Friday with missiles flying over Moldovan airspace was not the first incident. Um, there's been several incidents of that. When the escalation first started February of last year, 
um, Moldova shut down their airspace, shut down their airport for a little over a month. And I think, you know, there was that initial fear then, um, but I think it still has grown to, and the question is, we really don't know what Putin's end game is. Um, is it this idea of a NATO barrier or is it reviving the Soviet Union, the Russian empire? Um, and if it is one of the latter, you know, Moldova would be a next step in the plan. Um, the other issue when it comes to if a coup is going to happen, you also have Romania on the border and Romania and Moldovan governments have been very close and whether Romania will help, will step in to help and fund Moldova. Moldova doesn't have much of a military to defend themselves. And from what it would sound like with this coup, it would become almost an internal civil war that would happen. Um, and if Russia backs it and no one else supports Moldova, the Moldovan government will collapse and become a puppet state to Russia. And what kind of military assets does Russia have in Transnistria? Um, the last reports I've read are a couple thousand troops. Um, they may have more. Transnistria itself is not a very large space. It's very a long um, section, and they Russia has no other access to Transnistria right now besides air. Um, they do not control any area in east in western Ukraine to perhaps transport troops. So if a coup and then a, a later civil war happens in Moldova, Russia would not have a direct connection to supply materials, um, unless that is part of a bigger plan of taking more area in Ukraine. But if there were to be a Russian coup attempt and that the pro-Russian people would be fighting the pro-EU people in a kind of civil war and that, and that Romania would come in because to help the government because it basically has no military. Wouldn't the Ukrainians, even though they got their hands full, they border with Transnistria, wouldn't they also get involved? I would think so. Um, considering how over the last year, how close Presidents Sandu and Zelensky have become, I think there are talks of support both ways. Although the biggest problem comes in is if Romania does offer help, um, is that seen as enacting NATO and is NATO then going to become involved if Romania becomes involved? Well, that is uh, one of the things that NATO is being trying to avoid, right? Direct mm -hmm. involvement, even though they're deeply involved. I think uh, Romania has actually sent a lot of military equipment, as has Bulgaria, to uh, Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the other complicated factors that comes with Moldova in terms of Bulgaria and Romania is many Moldovan citizens also hold either Bulgarian or Romanian citizenship. Um, and that allows them to work in the EU. Moldova has not been a country for that long. And one of the ways citizens can get citizenship in EU countries is if they can prove that their family lineage dates back to when the area they lived in was in Bulgarian territory or Romanian territory, they are allowed to get citizenship and get a passport. And that further deepens the ties between that region and to what connections will then Bulgaria bring support? And you're also invoking NATO. Um, I am also deeply concerned with United States sustaining support 
for the Russian invasion. Um, we have seen our U.S. Congress and Republican majority in the House, they have raised many questions about why the United States is supporting Ukraine. And many, there's talk about why should we send money over there when we need money in the United States? Would the United States then be able to provide support for a, yet another country? Well, that is indeed Putin's best hope. I think that the Republicans in the House, particularly the so-called Freedom Caucus, will cut funds. But Zelensky is now facing a, a major Russian offensive that's getting underway in the Donbass, and it's expected to really heat up on the one-year anniversary coming up on February the 24th. So as far as Ukraine is concerned, they are at a make-or-break moment, and it doesn't really help to have people on the American side. I mean, do you understand why there's a pro-Putin caucus here in the United States, not only in the House of Representatives, but on Fox News with Tucker Carlson? Can you figure it out? Because I can't. My only thought is that the, the pro-Putin caucus was years in the making. Um, if we go back to the 2016 election and the so-called Russian interference, um, I do believe Putin is smart, and this was a calculated decision. This wasn't a decision made on a whim to further escalate the invasion of Ukraine. And I think part of that is destabilizing the United States and putting thoughts of Ukraine or thoughts of Russia in the United States. Um, just over the weekend, Elon Musk is threatening to pull support for Starlink so Ukraine can't use them to detect satellites. And that is clearly what Putin wants. And I think this is years in the making of building this sense of doubt in the United States. And it is working for Putin. Well, Rachel Smalls, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Rachel Smalls, who was awarded a Fulbright scholarship to teach English in Moldova in 2021 to 2022. She taught in Moldova until February of 2022, when Russia escalated into a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Currently, she's studying for her master's degree at the University of Alberta in Canada, specializing in 20th and 21st century Soviet Russian history, and her master's thesis focuses on the formation of national identity in the Crimea Peninsula, specifically looking at the period after Nikita Khrushchev transferred the Crimean Peninsula to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic in 1954. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. 
And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.